Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. that you keep when you're talking in your sleep and when you're listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the Romantics for writing that song about their favorite podcast. I am John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a wicked good and a raw bone podcast. I saw the Romantics on that tour. They opened for Adam Ant at the Boston Orpheum Theater. I had second row seats. And somehow you're still listening to me. Think about that. Anyway, I didn't even get dragged there. That's the that's the key. It was all my idea. Before we get rolling, I want you to join the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group. Just ask to get in, and you're in. A lot of cool conversation about wrestling and other things. I have the feeling we're going to be talking about bad concert choices that we've made in life <laughs> starting on Friday. And follow me on Twitter. Just search for John McAdam. And follow the guy who has Moondog Maine and Don Morocco fighting with a chair. Now, I have this idea for a quarterly show every 12 or 13 weeks where we talk about what was going on in the World Wrestling Federation exactly 40 years ago and who better to bring on his triumphant return to stick to wrestling. I don't think I've had you on in over a year. Ron Lemieux, thanks for coming on. Hey, John, how are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Ron, tell me, have you ever gone to like a concert that you could talk about now and like, oh my God, that was embarrassing? Absolutely. My very first one, it was a date. Went to see Seals and Crofts. Oh, did you wear corduroy pants? <laughs> you probably don't even know who they are. <laughs> I do know who they are. They sing that, that, that song from that movie where Robbie Benson was a college basketball player. Rob. What was the name of that? Robbie Benson. All that goes back. One on one, I think it was. I don't know. I didn't like Robbie Benson because the girl I took to that concert had a crush on him. So, she's <laughs> <laughs> bringing all kinds, all kinds of bad memories back for Ron. Anyway, so yeah, winter of nineteen eighty-two. I can't believe it's been forty years ago. We're going to talk about what was going on in the WWF. I would say, Ron, the biggest story is the debut of Jimmy Superfly Snooker. He is way different than he was in Georgia. He had kind of a Pacific pimp thing going on, but now he's George the Animal Steel from Fiji. What, what was your thoughts when Snooker showed up in 82? Well, as all a lot of us were big fans of magazines, I only heard about Snooker through the mags. And, uh, of course, back then there was no Internet. There was no way to find out who was coming into a territory before they did. So, you know, when uh, Vince McMahon opens the show's championship wrestling back then, he says, the debut of Jimmy Superfly Snooker. I mean, I, I popped. As all these other guys that came in in that year, he always popped because it was a surprise. Not to get ahead of myself here, but I, I believe he debuted against Chef Craney. And it was, I think it was March 6th, but very excited. I, I, I don't think he was excessive as George the Animal Steel, but he definitely had the wild man thing with Albano as his manager. But I, I think uh, this question was asked on your site yesterday about who was the first heel cheered, and, and you hit the nail right on the head. It was, it was Snooker. And I think uh, he basically started the trend of heels being cheered. I think he was the first one. I'm pretty sure he was the first one. And I've, I've always had this theory that I believe I've, I've shared on this podcast that 
once you cheer for the heel the first time, it becomes a lot easier to cheer for them as time goes on. And Snooker was the first. And I noticed, and Ron, you used to go to the same Boston Garden shows that I went to. When Snooker fought Backlund, for the first time, Bob Backlund was getting booze. For the first time I ever saw. Maybe he was getting him against superstar Billy Graham, but I wasn't there. And it became just easier every month for that crowd to boo Bob Backlund. Oh, I totally agree. And and I don't know if it was the fans changing as well, because I think at some point the fans changed too. So Backlund was the squeaky clean good guy, and you had these fans that were semi-heel fans, I guess you could say. I think the fans actually started changing as well as some of the wrestlers that were coming in. And uh, I'm not sure about why. I guess the good question is, why do you think the fans were cheering Snuka? And in my opinion, as a fan back then, you know, we were used to heels in the WWF being mat wrestlers. All right? they, they really were no high flyers as, as heels. I mean, Snuka came in and his style was just different than other heels we saw in the territory. I mean, my favorite was when he would throw the opponent in the ropes, give him a leapfrog, then do another leapfrog when he came back and then gave him the chop. I mean... He just did things that we hadn't seen in the WWF back then. No, you're right. Most of the heels in the WWF were super heavyweights, and they just pounded on their opponent until they, until they went to their finishing move. I mean, and you're right about the crowd. It, it felt like, ah, should I say society or wrestling fans or something were becoming more and more anti-hero in the early 80s. Well, and I think that just kept on going up until today. I mean, honestly, and you're right, it's society. It really is, because if you look at the trends from back then to now, society as a whole has a harder edge to them. I, I actually agree. One thing I noticed about Snooker when he first arrived, I was waiting for him to do the Superfly Splash like I had seen him do in Georgia. The first couple of matches, he held back on that. He, he kept it simple did like a diving headbutt, if I recall correctly. And I remember watching this show with my friends and going, oh man, you know, you should see this move that he does off the top rope. And then he finally did it. And I mean, we just popped like crazy. It was like nothing, like you said, he was a flying heel, something that we had never seen in the WWF before. Right. And uh, I think when you said about the finishing move, I think he used to set up, set it up with a uh, over the knee backbreaker. And then he'd drop him down. And I think the first couple of, of, of matches he had on TV, I think you're right, it was a diving headbutt from the second row. But, yeah, the Superfly Splash, even, even baby faces, I, I hadn't seen a move like that. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool back then. No, you're right. No WWF babyface even had a finish or any kind of a move, a finisher or, or whatever like that. So right away, we start liking Snuka. Um, he, he did kind of do a stealish thing, like um, – he would go up to Gary Michael Capetta and Gary Michael Capetta would have a flower on the lapel of his suit and Snooker would eat the flower every week, or at least that's how he started. Right. No, you're right. He did. All right. Yeah. And, you know, it was funny that here's something I've wondered. Do you think Jimmy Snooker, they planned on turning him babyface before they, they even brought him in? My guess is no because they would have had his look a little bit more cleaned up to begin with. Like, by the time he turned babyface, he had shaven all of his facial hair and had got a severe haircut. Like, when he first got there, he had that, like, wild hair and that, like, goatee. No, I totally agree. I think, and 
back then, Vince McMahon Sr., I would say, I mean, that was the old way of thinking. So he's saying, oh, the fans are cheering him. We're going to turn a baby face. But in this day and age, like Austin was booed, but he still acted like a heel, and he was a heel until everything turned big time. But I, don't, I agree. I don't think they plan on turning Snook a babyface until they saw the reaction he was getting from the crowd. And then, of course, back then, they're like, oh, he's being cheered. Let's make him a babyface, you know? Yeah, well, we'll talk about more about this as we go on, but the WWF was very patterned. It's like no matter what, how the fans react, they tended to stick with the plan. And I think Snooker was like the one deviation. Right. No, I agree. But tell you what, it looked like it was the right move in, in, the, in the long term. It, it definitely was. One thing, Ron, a little bit off the script because we're talking about 1982. Let's say Hulk Hogan decided not to go to the WWF or the WWF decided to stick to their old formula. What do you think Bob Backlund would have lost the title? I mean, I'm, I, I want to get your input before I say anything. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I'll tell you, I don't kind of going along with that storyline. I, I think they made a big mistake turning his, I don't know how to say it. He, he went from the clean cut guy, which he always was, but then when he shaved his head and went to wrestling singlet, I just, I don't know. I, I just thought he got really boring as a, as a wrestling character. And uh, I don't know if they could have gone on because I don't think, I think his popularity was dying down. I agree. I mean, you and I would go to the shows at the Garden. In 83, he was getting a lot of booze. And I, I think even though the Federation was still drawing, I think he would have lost the title right around the time he actually did. I mean, Snooker had lapped Bob Backlund in terms of, of popularity. And, you know, we have people saying, well, Mick Foley said it, that the real main event of the October 1983 uh, Madison Square Garden show was not Bob Backlund against Mass Superstar. It was Jimmy Snooker against Don Morocco in the cage. Right. And I guess a, a good question to ask you is you, you asked about when, if Hogan didn't come in, and Backlund was going to drop the strap, who would he have dropped it to? My guess would have been Greg Valentine, even in 1984. Morocco would be another good guess, but not at that time, especially since Morocco has made it clear via shoot interviews that he just wasn't interested in having the WWF championship. What he liked doing is wrestling on the mainland for seven or eight months and then going home for a few months. Right. Now, making Valentine the champion, back then, of course, the formula in WWF was uh, having a babyface long-term champ with the heels chasing, uh, other than Superstar having that two- or three-year uh, reign. Of course, this 84 was almost a transition time between Vince Sr. and Vince Jr., correct? No, actually, Vince Jr. took over, I want to say, summer of 1982. Okay, so... Yeah, so then that formula is out the window because Vince Jr. was going to do something different anyway. I don't know about that. Valentine was absolutely solid as a wrestler, no doubt. But I don't know. I don't think he had the charisma to, to carry it. I don't know. It's interesting. I'd love to live that again without Hogan there and see what they would have done. Yeah, I think at some point they would have, like, like I said, not much longer than what they actually did. They It was time to make a move. I mean, six years. The champion gets stale. But anyway, another guy makes his debut in the World Wrestling Federation, Bob Orton Jr., managed by the Grand Wizard of Wrestling. Ryan, what were your thoughts on Orton coming to the WWF for the first time? 
Again, another wrestler announced as being on that I popped for because I read about it in magazines. The thing with Orton, too, is like Snuka, he had a finishing move with the superplex that I had never seen, and I thought that was cool as hell. So he was another heel that I really liked to watch and I was very interested in. Good wrestler. I liked him all the way up until WrestleMania with the cast and all that goofy stuff they did with him. But when he came in, he was a, he, to me, he was a legit challenger to Backlund. And I think, I'll be honest with you, and we'll talk about some other guys they brought in down the line, but I think that was the other thing that hurt Backlund's popularity. The, the quality of heels they were bringing in, the personalities and the way these guys could work, I think that went against Backlund as well. The other thing I wanted to mention to you with the Grand Wizard managing Orton, I thought at first, because I know the Wizard passed away in October of 83, I was starting to think that Orton was his last protege. But, God, I went back and looked, and I was like, how could I? First it was Buddy Rose, then it was Karate Kid Graham, which was awful. And then uh, how could you forget Sasha and Slaughter, right? Really and sad. then the mass superstar. Sorry, I went on the side note on that, but I, unfortunately, I didn't know the Grand Wizard was only 57 when he passed away, which I thought he was a lot older than that. I would have thought the same thing because he had been around forever and he, he looked kind of old. I think his last protege was mass superstar, though. Okay. All right. I might not have gone far enough. I saw slaughter, obviously, with the Patterson stuff, uh, but I didn't go further than that. Okay. And yeah, he wizard. I, no one's actually told me this, but I'm a hundred percent sure Grand Wizard would have been Paul Orndorff's manager had he not passed away. That that would make sense with the type of guys he managed. Yeah, and and especially since Orndorff, at least at first, did not have a manager. But anyway, Bob Orton Jr. I thought up until this point he was having kind of a weird career. He was a big star in Florida. Then he went to the AWA, and then he started working for the Poffos out in Kentucky, which was an outlaw territory. And it felt like, you know, the, the magazines didn't really cover that territory. So it felt like he had disappeared for like two or three years before he finally wound up in Mid-South, which, again, the magazines didn't cover Mid-South that much. So Orton, to me at least, had been like, you know, AWOL since 1979. Yeah, you said I uh, mentioned him big in Florida. He, he obviously was huge in Florida. That's where I remember him the most. And I guess you could say uh, when he went to Poffo's group that it was like a step down for him. Almost, you would think so, right? I would definitely think so. There's no way he could have been making as much money for the Poffo's as he was for Vern Gagne or Eddie Graham. Right, right. So you got to wonder if there's something else to the story there. <laughs> Bob Orton Jr. had a reputation as the wild man, so you never know what was going on with him. But I, I do know that he was blackballed for a little while for working for the Poffos. And then, of course, Bill Watts brings him back. And, you know, once the line has been crossed, it made it easier for McMahon to bring him in. Were you at the Boston Garden when Orton wrestled Bob Backlund? What month was that? Because I went to almost every show in Boston in 82. Uh, I missed a couple, but I my memory's not great. But there's only certain matches I remember. Uh, I was looking through all the history of wrestling today just to see the shows in Boston uh, during that year. And I'm pretty sure I was at that show. Okay, I think it was May. <laughs> I, I think it was May 1982. And I just remember it as being a phenomenal match. Like I came away from that. I had been going to the Garden for about a year, and I was like, that is the best pro wrestling match I have ever seen. 
If it was May 82, I was there because uh, I want to talk about a, another match that was on that card, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because it's one of the guys we're going to talk about in a little while. Okay. All right. Another guy making his debut. Not, he, he made his debut as far as I was concerned uh, because I had not seen him in the WWF, but Blackjack Mulligan comes back, managed by Fred Blassie, after being gone for seven years. And I remember being... Really surprised. This is how much of a, I don't know, I, a mark I was. And I'm like, oh, my God, Blackjack Mulligan's a bad guy again. How can this be? Oh, so you're talking about when he was in Mid-Atlantic and he was a babyface. Exactly. I, I knew about that from the magazines. I had also seen him. I Had I seen him in Georgia? I'm not sure. But, I mean, I, he had been a babyface. You know, I knew he was a babyface through the magazines since late 1978 and i'm like oh wow he's a bad guy again what happened yeah well they're not you're not supposed to know from territory to territory john so you know they can do that <laughs> but uh, i i remember mulligan from you know because i was a fan back when him and lonzo were the uh, wwf tag team champions and i i was more impressed with him back then when he came i don't know when he came back in 82 he was he was bigger than he had been i don't know i just he was just a plotting big bad guy, you know? He was, and he got this really weird perm, and he dyed his hair this weird red yes. color. I didn't know what curly. to make of that. Yeah, and it was curly hair. It looked terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and one thing, though, as soon as Mulligan came back, as soon as he was on TV, I was like, okay, they finally brought in a real super heavyweight to wrestle Andre the Giant, and I noticed that Backlund wrestled Mulligan once in the Boston Garden, and it was like a not a decisive finish. Like Bob just got thrown back into the ring right before the ten count. Mulligan didn't get a match against Backlund at Madison Square Garden. He got one at the Meadowlands, but I mean, obviously, in hindsight, they brought him in to fight Andre the Giant, which I think was a really smart idea. Right, and did that feud start with the TV match with uh, Andre and McGraw against Fuji and Saito? I believe so. I remember Mulligan running in and bloodying up Andre, and it was like, you know, okay, this is the I finally figured something out the right way. You know, this is the angle that they're going to start the feud with. Right, because yeah, I, I remember that that angle with, uh, you know, he came in and attacked Andre uh, during that tag match. I also remember an angle that they did with Mulligan where Pat Patterson comes out with apples. He's like, oh, I, I hear Mulligan's <laughs> hands are really strong. Let's see if he can crush these apples. And the apples were so rotten. They were falling apart before they really could even get into Mulligan's hands. Oh, God, I miss that kind of pro wrestling. Uh, John, you could have squished those apples. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, they, they, they couldn't have made it more obvious. I mean, they were falling <laughs> apart before Mulligan even got them. The fans aren't supposed to notice that stuff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't even the most insightful person in the world back then. But anyway, so we have another, a, a non-WWF championship feud. Like, Backlund's not involved in this feud. Greg Valentine attacks Pedro Morales and suplexes him outside the ring. Pedro is complaining. They did a really good job with this. I, I know we just talked about this like th three or four weeks ago, but Pedro would come out and he'd be like, you know, my back hurts. I can't play with my kids. It's hard for me to drive a car. I mean, he did a really good job putting over that angle. Yeah, Pedro, it, Pedro's an interesting story to me back then because 
again, this is going way back to when he was the champ, the world champion back in 72, you know, 71, 72. His style changed drastically over the years because back then he would throw flying drop kicks. He would do a flying body press off the top rope. And then the Pedro of 82 was a, a, a punch-and-kick type guy. Uh, he didn't really do a lot, but if he had a good heel to work with, and Valentine was, I mean, it was, it was fantastic. And, and he did a great job with his interviews in promoting the, the feud with whoever he was feuding with. You know, I, I give Pedro Morales a lot of credit. I was not a fan of, I mean, by 1982, I was not a fan of very many of the baby faces, including Bob Backlund and Pedro Morales. I did not like them. And, you know, as time has gone on, I mean, I give Pedro a lot of credit. He was as solid a number two behind Bob Backlund as the WWF could ask for. Oh, absolutely. And, and he had fans behind him, too. I mean, uh, you've heard the stories about what he used to drew, drew, uh, draw an MSG in Philly with the population that he was, you know, the Puerto Rican population, the Spanish population back then. I mean, he filled the arenas. I mean, he was very popular, even when he was Intercontinental Champion. And the matches he had with Morocco and Valentine and, and other heels. I mean, like I said, if you put a good heel in there with him, it's going to be a great match. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one thing, you know, and I, I've said this on the show before, I will never understand how they did not bring Pedro Morales back in 1977 when Superstar Billy Graham was the champion and, and do a series against Superstar Billy Graham. I mean, it was, it was so natural, but it never happened. Yeah, I mean, Pedro was, he was bouncing around territories back then, right? Didn't he do a stint in Florida? And um, I'm trying to think of the, I'm trying to think the of the AWA in, in Florida. Yeah, AWA in Florida. Yep, yep. And he was always, I think he, he really wasn't pushed as a main event guy in either place, right? It was like middle card Florida? Or did he have he the was, Southern title maybe for a little while? I think he had the Florida title for a little while. I mean, he got a decent push, but he was never a top guy. He was like the number three or number four baby face in the AWA and a little bit higher in Florida, but he never eclipsed uh, Jack Briscoe or Dusty Rhodes. No, 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 no nobody was going to do that. <laughs> no, absolutely not. But I mean, you know, I, I guess my overall point was that he couldn't have made, been making so much money for Vern, for Eddie Graham, as he would in the WWF as, you know, wow, you know, the guy who was the champion, five years ago has come back to, to challenge superstar Billy Graham. Yeah. Again, there had to be a reason. You're right. It would have made sense. So either one of the parties, either, either McMahon or Pedro maybe didn't want it, you know, for whatever reason. I mean, everyone who would know uh, is no longer with us and they probably wouldn't be totally straight with us anyway, but I'm, I'm thinking, you know, maybe Pedro just wasn't happy that he had the belt taken away. I don't know. Yeah, uh, it, it could be, but uh, I don't know. I think uh, Pedro, he had a good run. He really did. Yeah, he he definitely did from uh, mid-1980 until like the beginning of 1983. Uh, again, just a, a solid number two. Steve Travis is back in the WWF, and Rick McGraw has also returned from what I understand was a legitimate neck injury, and they formed the Carolina Connection Tag Team and they got over. They were two middle-of-the-card guys, but the, the fans ate them up. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I, I, loved, I love Rick McGraw. I really I liked him a real lot. But Travis, I, I, I just couldn't get into him. I just thought he was too plain. He wasn't charismatic. He, he actually good, decent wrestler, but as an overall professional wrestler, I just, I just didn't see it. Okay, I mean, 
I like having uh, diverse opinions here on Stick to Wrestling, so that's a good thing. And, you know, one of the things that really I was taken aback by when I first started getting the Observer, when I first started, you know, talking with other smart fans, supposedly these two were like the king of the, the, the party circuit. Like they came across as, you know, oh, good old lovable jocks on TV. But, I mean, I mean, the stories of these guys being wild men are out there. That's shocking to me. I never heard that. That definitely surprises me. Yeah, it, it surprised me when I heard it. And I don't know if you've read uh, Bret Hart's book, uh, Ron, but, like, Bret was all over Rick McGraw for, for never being in condition to perform, as they say. No, I do. It's funny, because I was going to mention, when I was talking about Travis just now, I was going to say I did hear stories about McGraw, and that's probably where I heard him was when I read, read Brett's book. But yeah, I heard that McGraw was quite the partier. Okay, and obviously these two, and you know, I, I didn't know it at the time, but you know, they were not shy about uh, the supplements, shall we say. No, you could tell with McGraw especially. Now, didn't, yeah. he, didn't, didn't he steroids have to do with his passing? I believe so. I mean, it, it was probably a combination of everything. I mean, the guy you know, is, is juiced up and he's using a lot of recreational drugs. And I mean, it's sad. I think he was 30 when he died. That's way too young. He was very young, very young and sad because I I thought he was a good worker. You know, I really enjoyed watching him. Yeah. I, unlike you, I, I liked Steve Travis as well. These were two baby faces that I dug. And I mean, it was, you know, it was almost like the fans bought into them and the WWF was like, well, you know, this is the role we have planned for them and we're sticking to the plan. Yeah, and uh, you know, there was sometimes they back then it didn't matter what you know, not as much today. As today, when the fans, Vince doesn't listen to the fans today. But back then, they they didn't listen much either. So, no, they you know, I, I mean, superstar Billy Graham talks about you know how he should have retained the belt, and I, I I disagree with him there. I think they should have gone with Bob Backlund, but yeah, they they stuck to the plan. Well, here's something that the WWF did not do very often with really any of their singles wrestlers, Jesse Ventura and Adrian Adonis are teaming up regularly. They were singles wrestlers, but they would more than occasionally team up. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, well, I think you think about it. They were the East West connection in the AWA, right? Um, I think that's part of the reason why they put them together. But I think these two guys out of everybody we've mentioned, other than Snuka, Adonis and Ventura coming in were huge for me. I mean, because these guys were like, you know, to me, they were in the AWA. They had the covers on PWR. I mean, I, they they were big. And I'm telling you right now, I, Adrian Adonis was such a great worker. I loved watching that guy. Jesse, and eh, not so much. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, Jesse was a great character and a good personality and great on the stick, but I, I wasn't a fan of his style. But Adonis could go. I've always said that, you know, when it comes to Adonis Mentora, a, people forget how bad Jesse Ventura was when the bell rang. I mean, he was, you know, as bad as anyone out there. And Adrian Adonis, 40 years ago, was in the conversation for best wrestler in the world. And, uh, you know, I, I've said this before, but I mean, he was right up there with Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat. That's how good he was. He was phenomenal. And it's funny. So. I had to be at that May 82 Boston card because a match that sticks out to me was probably one of the best matches I've seen in Boston. And it was Adonis against Pedro for the IC title. 
And it was probably the best match I saw Pedro and even even ones against Morocco. And it ended in a DQ, but uh, I'm telling you, Adonis, I, I just, you know, he was overweight, obviously not as overweight as he got later on, but but still, for his size, he, he could move. Yeah, I've been told that Adrian Adonis was just a, a natural bad body guy, that no matter what he did, he he always had that baby fat. And then when he, he stopped trying, his, his weight, you know, we went up to he had to be around 400 pounds. I'm not I'm not exaggerating when he was with the AWA in like 1987. But let's talk about Boston again. Adrian Adonis's last appearance in Boston during this run was against Andre the Giant in Boston. It was uh, the last match of the night. And Ron, I don't know if you remember this match, but it was like even as someone who didn't understand how wrestling worked, I'm like, OK, Andre the Giant is standing still, and this guy is flying around like a pinball, and it's great. Yeah, I, I know for a fact I wasn't at that show because I would have remembered that match. But that, that's how they made Andre look good, you know? Andre was a legend, and a lot of it was due to the, the people he wrestled. Sure. I mean, the average—I mean, well, look at WrestleMania three. I mean, the average person— that watched that show that, you know, wasn't a newsletter or even a magazine person. They didn't notice that, that those two were barely moving around. You're right. It had a lot to do with his opponents. Right. Yep. It was, uh, it was the mystique of Andre the Giant. Exactly. And, you know, I've said this on, on the show before. I mean, uh, you know, Cal Ripken Jr. and Joe Montana didn't come to places like Nashville, New Hampshire, but Andre the Giant did. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's <laughs> very true. I mean, I I got near him once. I could not believe how much space he sucked up. And I remember thinking, okay, I don't think he's seven foot four or seven foot five, but he is a giant. Yeah, I was. Um, you know, we. I mean, you reminisce a lot about Jack Witchies, but at one of the shows I went to, he was on the card. And you remember the bleachers there, and the dressing room was under the bleachers, and he'd come out of those that dressing room, and you have to duck under. He was huge. Absolutely, absolutely huge. Yeah, I, I, I didn't appreciate Andre as much as I should have because, you know, I'd, I'd seen him on TV plenty of times. It was always kind of the same match. And then I, I started seeing him live. And I have people who will say to me now, like, you know, oh, my God, you're so lucky to have witnessed Andre the Giant in person. I'm like, you know, yeah, maybe 30, 40 times. Yeah, but I don't I don't. I think maybe people say that they're not talking about the wrestling match itself. It's just the fact that you saw him because honestly, I mean, could you count how many good matches you've seen with him that were on one hand? I mean, honestly, I mean, he he was a, he was a legend, you know, but as far as the wrestler was concerned, I mean, how much did he really do? I mean, I I did like, um, I was just watching some old mid South stuff and I did like some of the stuff they did down there with him. Uh, One specifically, I think it was uh, Kamala bloodied him up or something. And, he got all enraged, and it, it was good when he showed emotion. Uh, that was, to me, was unforgettable. Like, he just grabs Bill Watts and starts ragdolling Bill yeah. Watts. Yeah. I'm like, whoa, no one does that. Yeah, and it was great. I'd never seen Andre get that upset like that. You know, it was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, that's the difference between Mid-South and the WWF. Each, each had a formula that worked, and the WWF liked to keep things simple. But anyway, we were talking about Jesse the Body Ventura. He and Tony Atlas had a pose down on TV leading to an arm wrestling contest. And you'll never believe what happened in that arm wrestling contest, Ron. Yeah, the same type of thing every time a cake shows up on a wrestling show, yes. right? It's the same, it's the same thing that 
the, the heel hits the baby face when he's get, about to get beat, turns the table over on him. You know, it's it's the formula, right? I mean, it, it, you could predict it every time. One of the things I really liked, and we're getting off WWF here, in 1989, they did an angle where Iron Sheik challenged Sting to uh, twirl around the the Persian clubs. And Sting's just kind of like, no, nah, I'm not going to try that, dude. And she gets all upset on TV because usually it's the dumb baby face that lowers his guard and, and gets destroyed by the heel. And I, I thought it was the greatest thing ever that Sting outsmarted the heel for once. And the newsletters didn't like it, but I liked it. Who cares? No, it was funny. I mean, it was something different, you know, but you're right. Cause everybody would have said, oh, he's going to pick him up and she's going to attack him. And it's the same old thing, you know? Could they throw a little wrinkle in it? Yeah, exactly. Now, Ron, I'm not sure if you were in Boston for any of Jesse Ventura's matches, but particularly his two matches against Tony Atlas. One ended in a double DQ, and the second one was a cage match between Tony Atlas and Jesse Ventura. Boston hated, hated, hated Jesse Ventura. I mean, this was Albano-level heat. This was Terry Funk in 1989-level heat. I'd never seen anything like it from another wrestler. Maybe Stan Hansen got it after he broke Bruno's neck, but that was before my time. I mean, did you notice that in Boston? He, well, I think the thing was his arrogance, you know, and the fans didn't like that. And that's how he, he came across as this cocky heel. He'd prance around the ring. He'd, he'd go to lock up. He would stop. He'd pose. And the fans used to get fired up about it. I think, too, a little bit of it was like the California thing. But here's the thing. He and this is a good thing. This is heel heat. He came across as a delusional heel. He'd be out there posing and saying that he had a better body than Tony Atlas. And we're all like, yeah, right. You think you have a better body than Tony Atlas? You don't have a better body than Rick Martell. You probably don't even have a better body than Bob Backlund. What is wrong with you? And now again, we hate the guy and that's his job. Yeah, exactly. He was doing a great job because that, that's what is he, he absolutely knew that he'd have a better body than Atlas, but saying that would get him more heat. It definitely got him more heat with us. And I mean, when he had that cage match against Tony Atlas in Boston, I mean, the heat was off the charts. The fans wanted Atlas to kill that man. Plus cage matches, people loved them back then. I mean, they, you know, they meant something back then. Yeah, I mean, I believe during my time, this was the only non-Bob Backlund cage match we ever had in Boston. And we didn't even get that many matches with Backlund in the cage. So it shows you what a big deal that feud was. You know, another thing about Ventura that made him great was that he was, you know, we all considered him to be a dollar store superstar Billy Graham. We didn't have that expression back then, but he was a cheap imitation of superstar Billy Graham, and it made us like him even less. Right. No, I agree, because Graham, well, it's it's funny we were talking about Snooker, but when Graham is a heel, I think he had his fans too, you know, and I think those fans that looked at Jesse as a cheap imitation of Graham, that, that was them, you know? Because Graham had his fans, and, and I'll be honest with you, when Superstars first run in the WWF as the champion, I thought I loved him. I thought he was great. Not to talk about his new karate thing when he came back, but you know, so if Jesse, if people looked at Jesse as a you know dime store superstar Billy Graham, I get it. I can see why they would do that. Yeah, I wanted 
superstar Billy Cram to come back as a babyface and say, you know, this guy is copying me. And I think they would have had a great feud. Unfortunately, uh, little did I know that Graham had, uh, well, he had really no choice but to shave his head. His hair had completely fallen out. And, but I mean, and he had shrunk a lot. So he wasn't the same guy. And then, like you said, he comes back with that, that terrible gimmick. I mean, if you're going to do a karate gimmick, at least do about an hour of karate instruction. I don't understand whose idea that was, but it was horrible. (laughs) Uh, According to Graham, it was his idea. He wanted to come back in all black because his feelings were hurt when they, you know, didn't keep the title on him and it just ruined his world. And this is, this is what he's saying, not me. Right. Now I just, it was awful when he came back. I thought it was terrible. Yeah. And plus he was already, you know, falling apart physically. And I feel bad for the guy in, in that sense, but you know, he was in the whole thing. His in-ring work was terrible. The gimmick was terrible. He wasn't big enough, etc. <laughs> anyway, Rick Martell and Tony Gurria are still in the WWF, still chasing Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito to regain those belts that they had first won in 1980. And they're also doing six-man tag team matches with Fuji and Saito teaming with Albano. Uh, Martell and Gurria had various tag team partners. Boston got Pat Patterson. Uh, what, were, what were your thoughts on Martell and Gurria at this point? I enjoyed watching them. I thought they were a good tag team. Martell, Martell was fantastic, and Gurria was your steady hand. The thing with this feud, I thought it was hilarious. Albano was hilarious in this role because he would wear the bandana, the Japanese bandana around his head, and he would act Japanese or whatever. But I mean, Albano's always been absolutely out of his mind, but he's always very entertaining to watch. And and you know, he'd always in the six man tags, you know, the same spot all the time. He'd get the tag when the baby face was down. And he beat on him for a few times, and as soon as the babyface would stop making a comeback, he would tag out. You know, but he he always did, did take a couple of nice bumps during the match, though. He did, and you're right. This was Albano at his absolute phoenix when he would come out dressed in uh, traditional Japanese garb and uh, like just talking Japanese nonsense, <laughs> like okay, oh, we're going. And Vince McMahon would look into the camera and say. Perhaps, indeed, Captain Lou Albano is turning Japanese. <laughs> Good old Vince. <laughs> he was so deadpan. It was great. And you know, I he knew about, who the vapors were. Oh, look at Vince. Can you even imagine? You look at Vince back then, and did, would you ever imagine what he would end up turning into? It's, it's amazing. It really is. I know. Well, you and I lived through it. I mean, Vince would be on uh, Saturday night's main event, like just, you know, screaming and, and going nuts. And I'm like, what happened to this guy? It was really a transfer. It was just funny to watch him growing, you know, myself growing up with him, you know, for being just a TV announcer to what he became. It's just incredible. Yeah. I, I don't exactly know when I started picking up the idea that maybe this guy is now running the show, owning the company. And then, uh, in late 1984, I you know, got one of uh, Norm Keitzer's magazines, and Keitzer spelled it out for me. I was like, wow, okay, he owns the WWF now. Yeah, I, I mean, I never, I agree with you. I never knew that, you know, what power he had. I mean, to me, I think it was a long time before I even knew he was the promoter's son, to be honest with you. I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea who the promoter even was. I thought it was just, you know, Hisashi Shinma was the president, and the promotion were 
different promoters from around the Northeast. I had no idea that there was a, a central authority figure other than the 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 uh, Hishashi Shinma who was billed in the magazines as WWF president. I figured, okay, he he calls the shots. And the funny thing was, is say what you want about Vince, but when he was was the announcer and he would do the ringside interviews, his facial expressions and how we would react to some of these guys were just priceless. Yeah, I call it the Vince wince when he just like puts on that face, like, oh, something disgusting's going on. He was so great. <laughs> uh, he was. He was really good. Yeah, I, I back to Martel and Gurria. I really liked them as a team. Uh, I was going to come into the show saying they were kind of the original Rock and Roll Express, but I'm going. To, I I don't want to upset last week's guest, uh, Chris Berg, because I do know that was Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel. I don't know if I would compare them to the Rocket Hole Express. But. Well, I mean, yeah, kind of two good-looking Martel and Gurria. I mean, the girls liked them, and I can't think of who else the girls liked in the WWF in the early '80s. To be honest with you, yeah, I don't know. If, see, Gurria for me, I see, I had what this '82. So at this point, I've been watching Gurria for ten years. And I just, uh, I, I don't know. He was still a good good worker in the ring. But as far as his, his appeal to women, I, I don't know. I, Martel, definitely, no doubt. But I don't know. Gurria, I, Gurria, I just looked at as a as a steady guy, you know? Yeah, and he was getting, I want to say older by this point. He was probably early to mid-30s. But, I mean, I, I knew girls who liked them. And, like, when I went to the arena and there was this – I mean, there weren't very many girls going to the Boston Garden or really any of the wrestling shows. But my observation was that they, they were over with the girls. Yeah, well, they were young. You know, like you said, Martel was a young guy, decent looking guy, you know. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to stay away from saying anything else. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the girls are going to the arena. I'm not going to say anything. Go ahead. You know what? I'm <laughs> right. Doing. Now, we have something weird going on. I used to get WOR TV on cable. And I would watch the wrestling every Saturday night at midnight. And they are promoting a Bob Backlund versus Magnificent Morocco match that's taking place in Honolulu, Hawaii. And they pushed this match pretty hard. And I remember being a kid, and, you know, we're asking ourselves, okay, are they trying to convince wrestling fans to fly out to Hawaii for this? Because I've been to wrestling shows and it doesn't seem like the most affluent crowd. Ron, did, did you get WOR? I did not, but I got to guess this was a deal between the Polynesian Pro, if that was who was running back then. It was. Uh, and Vince, for whatever reason. But you're right. No one's going to jump on a plane and go to Hawaii, but there had to be some kind of deal made for this to happen, you know? Yeah, I later learned that WOR was popular in Hawaii. People got it on their cable systems. And, you know, oh. I guess if you lived there, having cable was a really good idea. And, you know, they just pushed the match because they, you know, they, that's how they let fans know that the match was taking place. And if I had my time zones correctly, that would be on at six o'clock at night in Hawaii. So it was probably a pretty popular show. Right. See, I, I wasn't aware that they had TV in Hawaii. Well, that would make sense, honestly, because why else would they be doing that? Yeah. I mean, I think people underestimate how, how, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? How many people got WOR and watched uh, the WWF wrestling show? I have been told it was a million people a week. And if you stop and think about it, the show's on at midnight. So that's pretty, pretty popular and pretty successful. Right, right. So a lot of eyes were on that show. Yeah, exactly. Tony Atlas is back and he is teaming with SD Jones. 
So we've got a pretty good, by WWF standards, like a really good tag team. We've got Martel Guerrilla, Atlas and Jones, and the Carolina Connection as tag teams to go after Fuji and Saito. Uh, any thoughts on Tony Atlas and SC Jones teaming up? Yes. To get back to a point you made earlier about all these teams, very unusual for WWF to have a, a multiple teams challenging for titles. I think if you, you've been a fan a long time, you remember back in the day, you'd have the champions and you'd have one tag team that would be challenging them and they would wrestle all the time. So this was a good, this was a good period for the number of tag teams. The problem I had with Allison Jones is before they teamed them up, I mean, SD was pretty much a preliminary wrestler. I mean, he would, he would get wins over the Johnny Rogers and Jose Estradas, but when it came time for a big win over one of the main event wrestlers, he would put up a good fight, but he would never come out on top. So they were a good tag team to watch, but I never had any, any feeling that they were going to win the belts. I sort of did, even though I remember at the time thinking, okay, Fuji and Saito have not had the belts for that long, so I don't think Atlas and Jones are going to win the titles for them. But I, I was rooting for them. I liked SD. I liked Tony Atlas. People, when they talk, sometimes people talk about titles, okay? They get it backwards. They'll say things like, um, I think Jake Roberts should have gotten a run with the WWF championship. Well, nothing against Jake, but that's not how it's done. You have to say, okay, who's the best choice to be the WWF champion? And it was never Jake Roberts. Sorry, Jake. And I, to this day, I might have it a little bit backwards because I would have liked to have seen this team get a run with the, with the championships. Were they the best choice? No, probably not really, especially considering that, you know, and I know it at the time, the Strongbows were coming back or coming in, I should say, or <laughs> better put Chief J Strongbow and a tag team partner. But I mean, to this day, I would have been like, wow, that would have been nice. Yeah, you know what? The, the reason it would have been nice, too, is because people wouldn't have expected it, you know, for the most part. And I think that's where wrestling, I think, missed the boat was. And I get that you've got to pick the person that's going to draw people and everything like that. But too much back in the day was expected. I mean, they had to go. They should, should have changed things up more and had some surprise wins. Uh, giving some guy, maybe give SD, like I was talking about, give SD Jones a win over somebody that, you know, like a Crusher Blackwell or something. That might sound crazy, but just to, to put him over a little bit to make the fans go, wow. So when SD got in the ring again with somebody that was a main event guy, he'd have a shot. I mean, too much was predictable, you know? I mean, I was a big fan of the WWF, obviously, but it was so predictable. And like you said, it would be it would have been nice had they pulled out a surprise just like once a year on TV. Like you said, SD Jones getting a big win over someone who was on their way out of the WWF. I mean, it, it couldn't hurt anything, but they wouldn't deviate from their formula. And granted, it was successful. So maybe they shouldn't have. But I mean, you know, like I said, just every once in a while and. The tag team scene was the most predictable thing ever. I mean, I had the pattern figured out when I was like 12 years old. Yeah, you'd have, you know, when the Samoans were champions, when the Moondogs were champions, you know, you had Gurria Martel, uh, even going back to the Valley, the original Valiants with Jimmy and Johnny, you had Ho and Gurria. It was always one heel and one thing. The only thing that was interesting, and this is might be back before you, but I'm sure you've heard of the masked Russians, right? When they were around. Oh, yeah. Okay, they never won the belts, which was strange to me because, to, you know, I was a little kid back then, but they were the only tag team in the WWF, I can remember, 
that was a tag team that did not win the titles. And I was kind of surprised by that. But, uh, yeah, the formula always was one heel team and one face team, and that was it. Yeah, and, and you could always... The million-dollar question, who always managed the heel tag teams? <laughs> we almost always Captain Lou Albano. The one exception was when... Uh, when I was watching was when Fred Blassie managed Professor Toro Tanaka and Mr. Fuji and Blassie got all of the, the foreign tag team or the foreign wrestlers yeah. until Albano finally got this tag team. Well, it's funny. It's funny because uh, Blassie managed them their second run. Their first time in, they were managed by the Grand Wizard. That's so right. Albano didn't have them either then, so. Yeah, the Grand Wizard, oh, that's right. Albano managed the, the Blackjacks, Lonza and Mulligan. But Wizard managed Mulligan as a single in, like, 73, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. All right. Here's a match that you might have seen in Boston, uh, Ron. Andre the Giant and Rick McGraw are going around challenging Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito at the arenas. And were you in, in Boston when they had this match? Yes. I okay. Andre brought team up. Yep. Yeah, Andre the Giant... Uh, teaming up with the, uh, I mean, uh, Rick McGraw had to be five seven if he was standing on a box, and they did the thing where Andre and McGraw win the first fall by DQ, and then the second fall they win by pinfall, and the Garden comes unglued. Andre and McGraw have the tag team championships, and I'm the one person out of fifteen thousand who's just sitting sitting there saying, "Nope, I know what I know what they're doing." <laughs> It's classic because you're absolutely right. It always boggled my mind that no matter how many times people have seen that finish, they still thought the titles were going to change hands. Yeah, you know, there's a theory out there that back then, most wrestling fans were into wrestling if they're really into it for like two or three years. And then they've seen it all and they start uh, the promotion starts recycling finishes like those and it drives them away. Obviously, if that's true, you and I were two of the exceptions. Yeah, I guess, because you're right. The pop, and you, you could always recognize the pop, too. Like it was a pop, like a title change pop, you know? And you're right, you'd sit there and go, oh, gosh, these people all think the titles are going to change hands, you know? Yeah, and it was the last match of the night, in Boston at least. So now, you know, they announced, no, the, the first fall was a DQ, so the titles can't change hands. Well, why are we even still having the match? But secondly... You're not sending everyone home happy the way you ought to be. Right. And then back then, uh, most of the time, that's what they did. Yeah. They, they made it a point, and it was good business. You know, the last match, almost always the babyfaces won. And, well, the babyfaces won, but they didn't win the tag team titles. And you kind of a, a early, dusty finish. Yeah. And, and, you know, back then, like you would say, well, it wasn't the last match the main event. But back then... The title match, the main event was always the match before, usually the match before intermission, because at an intermission, they would announce the card for the next month, and a lot of times it'd be a return match from what you just saw. Exactly, and to me, that was the way, that, I mean, I remember going to, to the Meadowlands Memorial Day weekend in 1984 to see Flair Steamboat, and Flair Steamboat was on last, and it, it kind of threw me for a curve, because I, I'd never seen that before. And, you know, the people are filing out and they're telling them what, you know, when they're returning and what the main event's going to be. And no one was paying attention. Yeah, it's funny because sending the fans home happy, if you got a heel champion and the WWF say, I, I bet superstar Billy Graham's run, his match was probably never last because he probably had to win either by DQ or whatever because he kept the belt. 
So they probably have the tag title match or Andre or something like that last. But yeah, in WWF back in the day, like I said, they would always announce the next show. And you're going to laugh at this, but I love going to the movies, but I have to see the previews. I, I can't just go to a movie. I got to make sure I'm there in time to watch the previews. The previews are almost as exciting as watching the movie. When I went to a wrestling show back then, hearing what the card was the next month was almost as exciting as watching the matches that night. I don't think that's crazy. I can tell you that on the ride home from Boston back up to Nashua, New Hampshire, which is usually about 40, 45 minutes, we probably talked more about the show we were going to see in four or five weeks than the show we just saw. Yeah, and I think I was wrong. They didn't do that at intermission. They usually did it before the last match, correct? They usually did it in Boston, not right before the last match. It was usually before the second-to-last match, if I recall correctly. Yeah, but there was always so much anticipation, you know. And the next show in Boston will be they give the date, and I'd be like, oh, and you're right. You get the drive home, I'd be talking to the guy I was with, and I'd be we talk about what we're going to see that next month. Yeah, I mean, you know, they they had the formula down, and and we we absolutely loved it. And I, you know, I know that WWF wrestling was not as good as as Florida wrestling as Mid South wrestling, but I loved it anyway, and I know you did too. It was our territory, you know. Yeah, uh, it's funny. I I know some fans today that were fans back then, and they don't watch AEW. And the reason is they say WWF is my it'll always be my home federation. And I think that's bizarre, but some people have that feeling like it's their hometown place. I never made that transition as far as like you know I'm I'm sticking with WWF no matter what. I mean by the mid '80s, certainly you know it was the WWF versus the NWA and I was solidly in the NWA's corner. Oh, I'm right there with you. I'm I'm a huge Mid South guy, and yeah, I yeah. There's so much. There was so much other better wrestling out there. Yeah, it didn't, I didn't care if WWF was my hometown or not. Exactly, and you know, I thought the other wrestling, you know, like the NWA was way better. Even though you know, going deep into the late '80s, even early '90s, I would still occasionally go to a WWF Boston show if it's a show I liked. In 1982, I was going no matter what. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, things changed as years went went on. I can't, you know, back in the '90s and stuff. I don't. I didn't go to many live WWF shows at all because I just didn't enjoy the product that much. No. Same here. Right. When the early '90s, when the '90s started, I think the WWF really went into a tailspin and crowds started shrinking, et cetera. But well, we'll get into that at another time. January eighteenth, nineteen eighty-two. They had a match at Madison Square Garden. In my opinion, it was one of Bob Backlund's best matches available on video. Once again, we're talking about the greatness of 1982, Adrian Adonis. Ron, have you seen this match? I did not see this match. Sorry to say. Ah, that, it, it is a really good one. It is, in my opinion, one of Bob's best title defenses, uh, again, available. Ron, what is your favorite Bob Backlund match? Uh, I saw him... And Pat Patterson in Providence was probably the best match I saw Backlund in. Oh wow! Okay, and they had they had matches in Boston too. And yeah, old well, Patterson can have a great match in his sleep, and and I'm sure that was a good one. I I think my favorite they had a really good lumberjack match from uh, Landover, Maryland. Bob Backlund against Adrian Adonis in like, I want to say March 1982. But my all-time favorite was the Texas Death Match in Madison Square Garden against Ken Patera. This was May 1980. It was, it was a phenomenal match. 
Well, Patera, I mean, Patera was another one of those heels that bring out the best in Backlund. You know, yes. Um, if you wrote a list of challengers that Backlund had when he was champion, it would be, it's a who's who of tremendous heels, you know, just, just great workers, you know, and they just, and WWE just kept feeding them to him. I give Backlund his due, but I think a lot of his uh, popularity and a lot of his career in the WWF was, was helped by the, the people he wrestled. Absolutely. I'm like you. I give Bob Backlund his due. He was, it's almost like he was the lead actor in a really successful movie, but you didn't go just to see that, that actor. You went to see the movie. Like I didn't go to the WWF shows just to see Bob Backlund. I would have gone to see pretty much anyone as champion. And I think for the most part, the fans went to see WWF wrestling, not Bob Backlund. But again, I I give Backlund his due. It's like being, you know, the lead actor in a successful movie. Yeah, and if you look, you know, we're looking at this period, winter of, of 82. I mean, this is a perfect example of going to see the movie and not just the, the main character. I mean, the, the wrestlers in this period, we, we, we talked yesterday earlier that just second to none, the talent they had at this time was like one of my most favorite periods of WWF back in the 80s. I agree, and there, you see, I liked 1982 a lot more than I liked 1983 because we had fresh challengers for Bob Backlund. We had Adrian Adonis, Jesse Ventura, Bob Orton Jr., Jimmy Snuka. Like I said, Mulligan was new to me. Superstar Billy Graham, we hadn't seen him in forever. John Studd wasn't a great wrestler, but he was new. But Playboy Buddy Rose was new. So it was, you know, it was a great era. I absolutely, I enjoyed this year very much. Yeah, it was it was tremendous. I mean, like I said, it's just all these guys that came in in that one period, and to be a fan back then was so much fun. You know, it really was. I mean, it the WWF and wrestling in general still had my imagination captured. I mean, I, I'd been a fan now for about five years, maybe six years, uh, six years, and you know, got all of the magazines. You know watching WWF wrestling and at this point WTBS wrestling was appointment television. I, I, unless I absolutely couldn't help it, I never missed it. Yeah. It makes me long for the day sometimes to be honest with you. (laughs) Same here, man. Absolutely. Same here. So Ron and I have been talking wrestling for about an hour now, and I hope everyone has enjoyed it. We are going to have bonus content on stick to wrestling where we don't stick to wrestling. So, If talking about football is not what your cup of tea, then thank you for listening. And I hope you tune in next week, but Ron, what a weekend of NFL football we had just this past weekend. Oh my goodness. Made up for last weekend. That's for sure. (laughs) I mean, four great games, a four out of four perfect score, but Sunday night's game between the Buffalo bills and the Kansas city chiefs, It was a five-star plus game, one of the greatest games in any sport I have ever seen. It it was absolutely incredible. There were so many twists and turns, even in like the last, you know, three minutes of the game. I mean, just the whole thing. It it was almost like a movie. Honestly, there was so many points in the game that you could point out that was a turning point. It was just incredible. It was just, I was popping watching this game. And I didn't even have a dog in the fight. I was going to say, I am not a big fan of either team. I was rooting for the Bills kind of casually. I can't imagine what it was like being a Chiefs or a Bills fan and having to go through that. Man, I I feel bad for the Buffalo Bills fans because, 
I mean, just to go through that and, and to lose must be just gut wrenching. Yeah, two points I want to bring up. One, I, I think honestly the Chiefs should have lost this game, and the reason is the secondary. I mean, the Bills' receivers were wide open in the, in, in that, those last couple drives. Like, there's nobody around them. I don't get how you can leave somebody so wide open like that. And the second thing is, I don't know what they can do, but they got to change the overtime rule for the playoffs. Absolutely have to change that. They absolutely have to change that. I would have told you that before the game started, that just too much relies on a coin flip. And there will be people out there saying, well, the Bills didn't stop them. And I I understand that. But at the same time, the team who wins the coin flip has such an advantage. And it's a coin flip. In my opinion, the NFL should do what college football does. I think they have the perfect overtime system. Now, people could you could turn around saying if the Bills had won the coin toss, the Chiefs would have been able to stop them either. So you're right; it was a coin it was a coin toss. Something I don't I don't know. It, it's tough. You, you don't want to. Somebody said to me today, "Oh, they should just make another 15 minute period." I mean, these guys were dying out there. You yeah. can't do that. You know, the, the defenses were gassed, and that's why guys were wide open at that point in the game. And you also don't know if that 15 minute overtime is going to be conclusive. Like you might have, it might be a tie 75 minutes into the game. Right, right. But uh, I think you've got to at least give both teams a shot at the ball, you know. And then, and my son brought this up. He goes, Yeah, Dad. But he goes, But then after that, then it's still going to be the first, whoever won the coin toss gets the chance to win, you know? That is correct, but it evens it out a little bit. Like, okay, now you've got two short chances to stop the Kansas City Chiefs. Like, you know, you know I, I agree with that. It doesn't make it 100% fair, but it makes it better. And there's no no such thing as 100% fair. Even college football, the way they do it, you have the advantage if the other team goes first. Right, right. Well, this way at least is better than any score. Like, field goal is so easy. And that's the thing, though, is, you know, touchdowns now are so much more prevalent than they were you know, 10, 15 years ago. So now instead of a field goal being easy, a touchdown is easy to get in overtime, you know? Yeah, you're right. They've changed the rules so much that it favors, you know, in order to favor the offense, you know, you can't just have the rules be like it's 1979 again. Right, right. Everything, uh, everything evolves, you know? <laughs> so Ron, I, I don't know how big a Patriots fan you are. Tell me about this. Nah, you don't want to bring that up, pal. <laughs> I oh, are, a, are you or are you, are you not? No, I am a Boston fan for every sport but football. I am a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan since okay. Franco Harris's immaculate reception, so people can't say I'm a bandwagon guy. I was only 10 years old, so I've been a Steelers fan since I was 10. All right. I have been a New England Patriots fan since I was 10. And what are your thoughts on the Rams versus Bucks game? I mean, Tom Brady makes this incredible comeback in the fourth quarter and only to lose. Like this is something we're not used to seeing. I don't know what you can say. Interesting. So you're going to get a perspective from a, a Patriot hater. And I hate to use that word, but I hated Tom Brady. I hated the Patriots. And when he left new England, I found out who I really didn't like because I love Tom Brady. Honestly, might help that he was on my fantasy team the last two years, but anyway, I, he's incredible. I mean, I honestly, what happened yesterday, he's 44 years old. He still played great. Does he still have it left in him? I'll be honest with you. I think he should go out now because I don't think it's going to get better next year. He's going to be a year older. 
who knows if Tampa is going to be as good. And is he, I mean, unless he just really loves going out there every week and hanging with the guys, you know? Yeah. And one thing you always have to take into consideration, like if Tom Brady retires, that's it. He's never going to be able to do this again. But my thought is, I think we have seen the final game from Tom Brady. He said two years ago that, yeah, I'm going to play two more years. And I, I think he's done. And in a weird way, it's going to be strange living without Tom Brady on my television because he's been on my TV since 1997 when he was the quarterback uh, of the Michigan Wolverines. And right. then when the Patriots drafted him, I'm like, oh, good. Yeah, they draft him in the fifth round. And I'm like, oh, good. I think he's going to be a really good backup in this league. And he'll be great backing up Drew Bledsoe. Well, he was a little bit better than that. <laughs> yeah, just a little. <laughs> no, no but I, I think we've seen the last of him. Yeah, I hope for his sake it is. Because like I said, it's like it's almost like going out on top, right? Uh, don't be like Ben and hang on for another year. Believe me. That was <laughs> no, don't be like Ben. Uh, let me tell you something. As yeah, a Steelers that... fan, it was absolutely not just the playoffs, the whole season. The poor guy couldn't throw 30 yards down the field anymore. Just watching them was so, is such a wreck. So don't do that. Go out now while, you know, you made, you made it to the divisional round of the playoffs. You might get an MVP this year. Uh, it's not going to be better next year, you know, so you should go out on top. Yeah, it, it's hard to leave right after you win the Super Bowl. And this is like, it's almost like a perfect end for him. He gets his comeback. Ultimately, his team falls short. And, you know, now he can go out. I mean, if you're going out when your team is in the Elite Eight, you're, you're doing okay for yourself. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, again, I was reading today that he really loves the camaraderie with, the, with his uh, teammates and loves the, the workouts. Well, not the workouts, but, you know, hanging out during the week and getting ready for oh, yeah. the game. But at some point in time, man, you just got to, you know, he said he'll play as long as his family wants him to. But I got to think that, you want to go out on top, you know? No, I, I agree. And it's, it's no secret that his wife was on the field with him last year after the Super Bowl. And she's saying to him, you know, right after the game, right after they won the Super Bowl, she's like, uh, I, I forget exactly what she said, but, you know, she's like, you know, what else do you need? What else can you accomplish? Like, so we know she wants him home. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it probably is it. But of course, right afterwards, it, that always drives me crazy with reporters, too, constantly asking the question right after. They, they don't know. They're not going to tell you, oh, yeah, I'm done. You know, they're not going to do that right after a game. Same thing with they do with Aaron Rodgers, you know? Yeah, it, even it gets Rodgers, to be a bit much. Even though Aaron Rodgers is going to the Steelers. But anyway, no, just kidding. <laughs> he might. I don't know. Uh, I would love it because now nah, they're talking about drafting. So uh, it's going to be rebuilt in Pittsburgh, which is no such thing. So we'll see what happens. It's kind of like Red Sox fans hate to hear that we're rebuilding, right? Uh, the Red Sox never rebuild. <laughs> Red yeah, Sox bridge, never bridge, rebuild. Bridge, it's a bridge year. <laughs> there is a quarterback out of conveniently out of the University of Pittsburgh named Kenny Pickett, who would look really good in a Steelers uniform, in my opinion. The problem is they'll probably have to trade up to get him. Yeah, that that's the name they already talked about. So I think they would be willing to do that. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm not a huge college football fan, so I'll ask you, would it, that be a good pick? It depends if he falls to them or if they don't have to give up uh, the moon and the stars to get him, then yes, I see him 
as, you know, maybe he will be like the 10th or 15th best quarterback in the NFL, and that has value. And, I mean, the joke going around about Ben Roethlisberger is he looks like he's throwing a Kleenex into a wind tunnel. I mean, he I saw him play this year. It was not pretty. Oh, it was brutal. Absolutely brutal. As a Steeler fan, it was hurt. I didn't even want to make the play. I, I, I'm like, they will... <laughs> I wish that game had ended at a tie so they didn't make the playoffs because, like, everyone's like, oh, you, you psyched the Steelers. I said, why? They're going to get crushed. You know, and I'm not – and it's funny. People get mad at me, but I'm not one of these fans that are, think their team is the greatest when I, I see what they really are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I'm not a homer so much that my team's the best even if they suck. So uh, I tell it like it is, and it was I, – I knew they were going to get smoked by the Chiefs. I, what was the sense of watching that, you know? Yeah. Well, one thing, they, they do need a quarterback one way or the other through the draft or through the, you know, a, a trade or acquiring a, a Russell Wilson or, or Aaron Rodgers, because I, I forget the guy's name. You'll know the guy's name, but the, the backup out of Oklahoma State, he stinks. Oh, uh, Mason Rudolph. That's him. Terrible. He's, he's horrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not they, an I NFL quarterback. Not, he had Dwayne Haskins, but... I can't believe they didn't pick up another quarterback to back up Ben because, you know, Ben was so frail. He was a couple hits away from being out for the season, and they're going to go to Rudolph after that? That was crazy, you know? Yeah, my my feeling is that they know what they have in Dwayne Haskins, and and they're not happy with it. They're, you know, they see him in practice, and they're like, okay, this is not the guy. No, he's not not their guy. Not at all. Not at all. All right. Well, anyway, to recap how great – I thought the the Chiefs and Bills game was, um, I mean, they scored 25 points in the last two minutes. The Chiefs scored a field goal to tie the game. They were at their own 20 with 13 seconds left in the game, and they scored. It was nuts. My favorite football games of all time, okay? The 1981 AFC Championship game between the Chargers and the Bengals. These are in no order. The 1984 Orange Bowl between Nebraska and Miami. Then we get to the 2006 Rose Bowl between Texas and USC. I forgot the snow game or the the tuck game with the Raiders and the Patriots. And then we have last Sunday night's game. Those, in my opinion, are the five best football games I've ever seen. I have not been able to compile a list. Agree with a lot of those, but one of mine... And uh, way back in 1971, the Chiefs-Miami triple overtime won by a Garo Premium field goal. And uh, that was that was a classic game. I was only, let's see, and I was only 10 years old, and I remember that. So that was crazy. But, um, yeah, and, you know, John, if you remember this, this is crazy in this game, and I think um, Tony Romo mentioned this. Why didn't the Bills do a squib kick or kick short of the, of the end zone to make some seconds come off that clock? I was saying the same thing as I watched the game. I would not have put that in the end zone. I I, I definitely wouldn't have kicked it to Tyreek Hill, but I I would have squibbed it, absolutely. And, yeah, that made a difference. That would have given Mahomes only one play. Now, obviously, they're thinking – now, most people are thinking, 13 seconds. Come on, he ain't going to do anything, right? I mean, I I thought the game was over. 13 seconds, this guy, two plays, got him in field goal range. I thought the game was over as well, but it's like leaving your car unlocked. Why take chances? Yeah, it's probably not going to get stolen, but you lock the car. <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 
Ron, thank you for coming on. I, I always have fun just hanging out, talking wrestling, and in this case, bonus content football with you. Great time, John. Thanks for having me on. All right. I want to thank Ron. I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, I hope you're back next week. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this platform on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I want to thank Lou Kippelman, who makes this show, produces this show, and does a really good, an excellent job every week. What am I talking about? And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. 